You're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, my brothers and sisters in Christ, how are we supposed to preach after that kind of worship? Man, that was just wonderful. Let's thank God again for that worship. Yeah, that's just amazing. So glad that you could be here. Thank you for being here today as we worship God together as his family. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. If you want to be turning to that in your Bible, that's in a New Testament side, kind of the right half of the book. We'll get there in just a few minutes. And today is a special day for our church family. Today we are celebrating 12 years. That's just crazy to me. On one hand, it seems like yesterday, and on the other hand, it seems like a lifetime ago, uh, maybe like 30 pounds and seven inches of beard. I don't know. Uh, there are many of you who serve here each week that were a part of that original team. I'm not going to look at you because I'll cry. Uh, many of you, you came soon after. Uh, I, I want you to know that I'm so thankful for all of you standing with our church family through all these years I, in a world where people jump from church to church, uh, like jumping from one favorite restaurant to a next, that they think, hey, I think I want Italian this week. Uh, they go to a different church like that because I get it. I'm, I'm not the best leader. I'm not the best preacher out there. It's, that's not false humility, I promise you. It's just simply the truth. I, I remember walking off stage on that first sermon uh, thinking, man, well, I wonder if they'll give me my job back. You know, of like, I, I, I don't think I can do another week. I remember thinking that. I'm serious. And, and you know I'm right because I'm not good enough. But praise God, he's good enough. Amen. Slowly, I've learned to preach a little bit, to lead a bit. I've learned to lead a church, and, and thank God he has surrounded me with wonderful people that are much more gifted than I uh, am. I'm humbled to get to serve alongside them, and I often feel like a post-turtle. Uh, do you know what a post-turtle is? Oh, I'll tell you. Glad you asked. A purse post-turtle is this. A, a rancher was talking to a young city guy, uh, and he compares uh, preacher the preacher to a post-turtle. He says, that young man doesn't understand. Ask him, what is a post-turtle? And the old, old rancher says, man, when you're driving down one of those back county roads and you see a fence post, and, and right on the top of it, perfectly balanced, is a turtle. That's a post-turtle. And, and you know, he didn't get up there by himself. He doesn't belong there. You wonder who put him there, and he can't get down by himself. And he, you just feel bad for the dumb sort of thing, right? Well, I get all the time asked that question, how did you get to be where you're at? And I go, I don't know. I don't know. In an age where so many old churches are closing by the thousands each year and where it's hard spiritual ground in northern Colorado, it seems like new churches uh, don't last too long, too. I, I think the secret of Bentry's success is first and foremost God. God has had his hand on this place, and we just can't explain it. Uh, second, prayer has been uh, the key as we bathe this thing in prayer Seeking God. I mean, third, even if I didn't know what I was doing with preaching right from the beginning, we made this the centerpiece of our preaching. Uh, the proclamation of God's word. And finally, it's been about you. Um, the people of God, whether or not you've been here since day one or just joined us 
Last week, God has brought you to be part of the family of God, this local part of the church. Well, see, this is a supernatural thing we're doing here, uh, not just this service. I do mean that, but this, this family of believers that God has brought together, I believe that with all my heart. Now listen, I truly believe that the local church is God's plan to reach the world. That's plan A and there is no plan B. You see what I mean? Because Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission, our job is to reach every corner of the world with the life-changing message of the gospel and then to teach them everything that Jesus taught us. I'll say it again because I've sold my life out to this position. The local church is the hope of the world. It is Jesus' plan A. There is no plan B. Bentry Church, I'm honored to serve alongside you. I am. Uh, uh, And alongside our pastors, Pastor Hunter Trimble, Jeff Lorimer, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Hal Hudson Jr., and by our our small but amazing staff that God has been so gracious to equip us with, Krista Schutz, Angel Luring, Nicole Watts, Maddie Lerner, and you shepherding elders. Man, I'll cry if I think about this, but... They stand shoulder to shoulder with us, the body of Christ, as they oversee this flock. Victor Amaya, Jerry Shockley, Howard Winger, Mark Stanfield, Bill McKinney, Larry Albertson, Ed Wolf, Don Williamson. Men, it is an honor to serve alongside you. Well, this is starting to sound like a resignation letter. It's not. I I plan on being here until uh, God takes me home uh, as long as I live. Bentry Church, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Let's give God a hand. Yeah. Well, let's get to our time of preaching, but would you bow your head? Let's just pray and go to God. God, our Father in heaven, we just come before you in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus. Father, we're just so thankful for what you have done through us and for us, and you've brought us together. You have supported us through the ups and downs of life, through our bad decisions and good. God, I'll I'll just admit and repent of worry that I've had throughout these 12 years, worrying about my ability not being able to preach well and not having enough money and not having a building and just hard times. But God, you've been faithful. And we know that you are faithful and will be faithful. Lord, we want to be the church you've called us to be, to continue to give us the love for the lost of this world, the love for you, Jesus, the love for your words revealed in the Bible. Lord, we want to be faithful to preach the word, to help people grow into all that you have called, you have designed them to be. God, We pray that you cause us to be faithful in the mission that you have given us. And now, God, we pray as we open your words in the Bible that you would speak to us, change us through the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit working and active in our hearts using that word. It is in the name of Jesus that all of us said, amen, amen. Let's stand together if you're able as we publicly read our text of Scripture today. John chapter 4, surprise, verse, verse 25. 
The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went into town and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and, and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Now this is the word of God, amen? You may be seated. This is the story of the woman at the well as she has this conversation with Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. We've been here for a while. He had sent his followers in to buy, into town to buy food, not because he was hungry, but so that he could have this private conversation with this woman at the well, this woman indeed. And while they were gone, she came to draw water from this deep well. Jesus asked her for a drink because he's physically thirsty, but she complains to him that he, a Jewish man, is asking her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. And he says, if you knew the gift of God, you would be asking me for a drink. Well, he was the gift, right? The ensuing conversation leads the woman to believing that Jesus is the Messiah and going into town to tell her friends that they should come and check it out for themselves. See, is this the Messiah, the promised one of God? And for the last couple of times together, we've been digging deep into the part of the conversation where Jesus answers the woman's specific question about where and when and how to worship. But this week, we return back to the narrative of the story. The woman goes into town to tell her friends about Jesus. But I promised we would come back to this little section of Scripture while the woman is gone into town to tell the townspeople, but before those townspeople arrive. You got the picture? It's easy to brush this little part aside, miss the deeper significance of what Jesus is teaching here. At this point in the story, the woman is clearly touched and she is born again. We're not told, but there are probably some tears in the woman's eyes. Uh, I think she probably ran all the way back to town. Uh, she is standing there with Jesus right before uh, she leaves. Jesus' disciples walk up. You get the picture? Look at verse 27 again. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. She's still standing there. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Awkward. This is awkward. Now we may not get how awkward this is. Why this scene here feels so tense for these disciples walking up to this awkward situation is because it's really awkward culturally for them. These were Jewish men, and in Judaism, it's thought that a rabbi should never speak with a woman who is not his immediate family, like his daughter or his mother or his wife. At best, the thought was that was simply a waste of time. 
They would say it's as if they were talking to a dog. Now, dogs were not pets then. They were just strays. So they would go, ah, it's just like talking to a dog. It's worthless. The disciples were also convinced that not only was salvation from the Jews, but that it was exclusively for the Jews. In, in other words, Samaritans need not apply. And what they are about to experience is Jesus' way of teaching them that the gospel is for every nation, tribe, and tongue. In Revelation 7, 9, that's what we see around the throne of God. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue are worshiping. But at worst, the disciples thought, popular Jewish rabbis taught this, that talking to a woman, any woman, not immediate family, was not uh, it was, was not a distraction, but something worse. They taught that any woman who was not a family member had been actually sent by Satan to interrupt the, the rabbi from reading and studying the Torah. And that if a rabbi talked to a woman outside his family, that could lead to eternal damnation for the rabbi. In other words, hell. It's not just awkward because Jesus is talking to a woman, that would be awkward enough. But he's talking to a Samaritan woman. This is embarrassing to the disciples, and they thought maybe Jesus would be embarrassed too. But he's clearly not embarrassed. If you know the story of Jonah and the whale, you, you'll remember that God had commanded the prophet to go, Jonah, to go to the people of Nineveh, uh, basically in the neighborhood of Iraq now, to call them to repentance. But Jonah instead did what? He ran from God. He didn't want to go preach to these people. Why had Jonah run? Well, because Jonah actually hated the people of Nineveh. He wanted to go destroy them for their sin. He wanted, he wanted God to rain down fire. Well, if you know that story, as Jonah is running from God, his command, he is swallowed by this giant fish who spits Jonah upon the, that, that's not in the Bible, I just added it, but onto the beach, right? He goes to Nineveh and preaches repentance to the Ninevites and they repent. God relents because of their repentance. God doesn't destroy Nineveh. And Jonah is ticked off that God doesn't destroy them all. In our passage here today in John 4, these disciples walk up on this awkward conversation with this woman that Jesus is having. These guys hate Samaritans. They need, needed to understand the truth that the good news of the gospel is for all people. The good news of the gospel is for all people. There is no one out of the reach of God. Did you hear me? There is no one out of the reach of God. Some Christians say amen. I mean, this is inherent in the great commission that Jesus gives to the church. We look at this great commission so often out of Matthew 8, I'm sorry, 28, verse 18. But it's something that needs to be looked at often because this is our literal job while we remain alive on this earth physically. Look at this, verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we, the church of Christ Jesus, his followers, go into all the world to share this message, or what we refer to shorthand as the gospel. This means that we go into all the places that we are able to go. By the way, that's why we, Bentree Church family, send a check each week to the International Mission Board. Every week, part of our giving. One of the reasons we are part of the Southern Baptist family of churches is their commitment to send missionaries all over the world. Southern Baptist missionaries don't have to go and raise support like most missionaries do. Most missionaries have to go and ask for money from individuals, but Baptist missionaries are supported by little churches just like us all over North America that choose to covenant together. We're independent, but we choose to covenant together to send out missionaries. You with me? Today, we, we, might, um, we might be able to go overseas personally, or maybe not. But we're able to make sure that a regular check is there for missionaries that can go and have surrendered. Does that make sense? Now, we don't just support IMB. That's how we uh, say it, International Mission Board, IMB. We don't just support them. We also support missionaries in Africa, specifically through an organization called Choose to Invest, outside of the Baptist CTI. And while I'm on the topic, let me just point out uh, that right now, the giving that you are doing to the hundreds of thousands of people uh, now in the millions displaced by war, you're helping feed and clothe them, house them through local Baptist churches just like us in places like Poland, Germany, Moldova, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania. And those churches exist because of our international mission board. You, you with me? Now, why do we do that? Because we don't care what race you are. We don't care what language you speak. We want to spread the good news of the love of Jesus Christ. And what better way to spread that good news than being the loving hands of Jesus to a war-torn country. Now consider what the Apostle Paul teaches us here in Galatians 3 verse 28. There is no Jew or Greek. Slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Or in other words, if we are in Christ Jesus, no matter our nationality or race, we have been adopted as one of God's people, his children. Amen? How about this passage in Romans 10, 12? Since there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These disciples, they're not interested in this woman hearing the gospel. They have this preconceived idea of who should hear the gospel and who shouldn't. 
like us, Jesus' disciples, have to shake off our, our sinful biases that we have in our life. By the way, what are some of your sinful biases? Is it a person of a different race? How about a Democrat? Republican? How about someone who wants you to wear a mask all the time? How about someone who is immoral? How about a homosexual? A trans? A feminist? Now listen up. You see, the deal is we can often fall into a trap these disciples fell into. The trap is they thought that the gospel was just for a certain type of person, someone who was good enough to be saved because they were the right race, the right sex, the right heritage, Jewish. But our job is to take the message to the whole world. Come on now. Our job is not to save people. That is only possible for God. Our job is to present the gospel to them. The trap I've fallen in in the past is to think, well, if a person stops being a homosexual and gets straight, then they can hear the gospel, then they can get saved. Folks, that's wrong. First, they hear the gospel from us. They are regenerated, born again by the Spirit of God. They are given faith to believe, and they do. They repent of the sin, first, of not believing in Jesus as the Son of God. Then, the Holy Spirit begins to work on them, and repentance begins to be produced in their life. Their life becomes a life of repentance, just like yours and mine is they begin to understand what Jesus expects and commands of them in this. They turn from what the Bible describes as sin. Sexual sin. The sin of lying. The sin of coveting other people's stuff. The sin of idolatry. The sin of pride. Listen, the repentance that has lasted and grown in me and every other Christian that I have ever discipled is simply not that I don't want to sin, but the repentance that has lasted in my life and I've seen in other Christians is that when I've come to understand and love Jesus at such a depth that I just don't want to do something that he said not to do, even though I still want to. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should endorse continued sin in the lives of Christians in the church. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, hey, you should just sin and do whatever you can. You, you could just hang here. Now listen, let me be clear. Whoever you are, you can come to Bentry, but we will always preach the truth. We should strive to live the holy lives as unto God and to hold each other accountable. We should call sin out in the church, in, in, in members in the church when we see it, privately, at least at first. Jesus pointed out this woman's sin, didn't he? But then he showed her how to find eternal life in believing him in him as the Son of God. But what I'm saying is that we should not expect, listen to me, don't expect non-believers in Jesus to start acting like they are Christ followers before they get saved. Sometimes I feel like that is the message of so many Christians 
Stop sinning. Then maybe God will notice you, and then you can be good enough to get saved. Folks, that's wrong and sinful. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Anybody? Raise your hand if you, you remember that story. Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. He was a cheat. He was a Jewish man, but he was enriching, enriching himself by working with the Romans to cheat his own fellow Israelites out of their money. But Jesus, as he walked under the tree that Zacchaeus had climbed to get a glimpse of Jesus, it's at that point that Jesus stops and looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it's necessary for me to be at your house. Now, that made all the Jews and the religious leaders upset that Jesus would speak to the scum of a person and then go to his house and eat with him. So they complained and said, Jesus is going to stay at a sinful man's house. But Jesus doesn't care about that. Look what he says about Zacchaeus in Luke 19.9. Today, salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and save the lost. Jesus goes after the messed up sinful people of the world. Praise God, because that's you. And me too. He doesn't ask them to get right and then he will come save them. He goes after them. He chooses them. That's the language of the New Testament. And that's good, isn't it? Because I'm one of those screwed up people. I just am. And yet he chose me. And he chose you. But praise God, Jesus came for us. Because we were lost. By the way, once Zacchaeus was born again, then we see him repent, don't we? He promises to pay back what he has stolen, plus even more. Notice that Jesus calling Zacchaeus to life came first. Zacchaeus was then born again, regenerated, but once he was regenerated, it was then he started to repent and change his ways. He didn't change his ways, then get saved. Do you see that? First comes regeneration, being born again. Faith, then repentance. So many times Christians expect non-Christians to act like Christians. And then they're surprised when they don't act like Christians. Repentance comes as a result of being born again. That's what we love about the story of the woman at the well. Jesus breaks through those barriers, doesn't he? He doesn't say, if you had only been with one or maybe two guys, three at the most, but now you've been with five husbands and the guy you're with right now. No, he just points out her sin, her need for forgiveness. He offers life to them, this woman that everyone else had given up on. Let's look again at verse 27. John 4, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Notice here when John tells us, the apostle John tells us what the disciples didn't say, but clearly were thinking, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? They didn't want to tell Jesus that he's breaking the social custom, but they feel like they should. And they don't talk to the woman either because then they would be guilty of the same crime they think Jesus is guilty of. Do you see that? They're not going to talk to her. They're not going to even look at her. I can almost see them looking at Jesus then at each other. 
Not at the woman, just kind of out of the side of their eye. He says, you talk to him. No, you talk to him. I'm not going to talk to you. You talk to him. Now, it's right here at verse 27 that we see those two words just, just then. Just then. The original Greek phrase is epa tu totu means at that very moment. Now, check this out. This is so cool. What seems like an awkward timing event here for us as his disciples arrive as this woman runs off leaving her water jar is really a picture of Jesus' sovereign control of all the events of his earthly ministry. You see that? It's as if Jesus opens a little window to see his deity right here. As we read and study the life of Jesus, we'll always keep this in our mind, who Christ really is. On one hand, he's truly God, the Son of God made flesh, and yet at the same time, truly man, human, one person with two natures, both divine and human. We can't separate that. What we are seeing is Jesus' mastery of the moment. Nothing is left to chance. I know this blows our little mind, but hang with me. I think you'll see this clearly. Now, we studied this, this verse a few weeks ago. Remembering, I've got friends in low places. Anybody love that week? I love that week. I got to sing a Garth Brooks song. I've got, I think about it. She goes to tell the people in her life about Jesus. She goes to her friends in low places. Look at verse 28. Then the woman left the water, her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. So this passage here is happening as she leaves her water jar, goes into town to tell people about Jesus. But before the people get back, so it's this little interlude here. In the meantime, the Bible says, the di disciples haven't said anything to Jesus about the awkwardness with the woman. And Jesus, Jesus uh, isn't talking, uh, that Jesus is talking to. But Jesus knows what they're thinking. They haven't said anything, but he doesn't say, hey, I know this is weird and awkward, but I'm, I'm just following my Father's plan. He doesn't say that. Remember, Jesus had sent them into town to buy food, but now Jesus is apparently not eating what they brought back. So watch in verse 31. <clears throat> in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. This is a little bit funny to me. Hey, Jesus, you want a sandwich or something? We went to like 7-Eleven. James got one of those hoagie sandwiches. Um, Peter, he messed up their microwave with his burrito. He's got burritos. Like they're hinting around that he should eat something. They know he's tired. They know he's hungry. They've just walked 30 miles because they're tired. They're hungry. Maybe they're thinking he was talking to this woman because he's a little bit hangry. Anybody know what hangry is? You're a little bit angry because you're hungry, a little bit off. Get something in your tummy. You'll feel great. You'll be happy. Jesus, eat something. You're just a little hangry. Come on, eat something, Jesus. So Jesus says this, verse 32, but he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Jesus is about, uh, is about to teach them a ton right here. So get ready to take some notes. They're thinking physically. Jesus is talking spiritually. Verse 33, the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Now, they're all looking at each other. 
Who gave him something to eat? Was it you? Was it, it wasn't me. Was it you? It wasn't me. I promise. Now, we see Jesus respond to their confusion of him, talking to this woman uh, by teaching them a critical spiritual truth here. Now, don't miss what he says in this next verse. There's verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Now, this is going to blow our mind. At least it does for me. Jesus' words here are so similar to that of Moses' declaration of God to the Hebrew people at the end of their 40-year journey through the wilderness. And God had delivered them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, right? 40 years in the wilderness. God had taken care of his people for 40 years. He had fed them, clothed them, protected them, housed them. His people, the Jews, are about to go into the promised land. So God tells them in the Old Testament, back in the book of Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3, carefully, following every command I am giving you today, carefully follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and prosper, live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord has sworn to your ancestors. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey for 40 years in the wilderness. You with him? So that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man, underline this, does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Did you catch that last line? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now just this just gives me goosebumps right here. Because although the Gospel of John doesn't cover the temptation of Jesus, the other Gospels do. Do you remember when Jesus in John gets baptized by the baptizer in the Jordan River? You remember that? It's like that event is Jesus' public event saying to the world, I'm the Son of God. Watch what happens in Matthew 3, verse 16. I promise this will connect. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. He comes out of the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You with me? Chapter 4 of John is not that long after Jesus' 40 days of fasting and then being tempted by Satan to do a miracle for himself to turn stones into hot bread. Now this temptation of Christ Jesus by Satan is a sermon for another time, but you know how powerful food is to the hungry. I mean it. 
Jesus turning down hot bread after not eating for 40 days. Man, that's a powerful temptation. Man, when I am at Olive Garden and the waiter asks, do you want some more breadsticks? Listen, my answer has never been no. The only reason I'm alive is BB cuts me off. I always say yes. But look what Jesus pointed out here. He is being tempted again with the disciples right here. Not by Satan directly this time, but by his disciples. It's not obvious, is it? Remember, Jesus has set up this moment. There are no accidents. They know how hungry he is. There are no chance encounters. There are no things, there's no such thing as chance. What takes place when we hear the woman is back in the village and Jesus and his disciples have these very few minutes together, Jesus is going to teach them some serious stuff about love. What is it? Well, he just told the woman a few verses earlier that he's the living water. You remember? A water that can quench your true spiritual thirst you have. And now he is offered bread. And he's going to use this as the opportunity to talk about real food. Real food. Jesus is talking about the true satisfaction of a physical need. And he is equating that physical need to our spiritual need. Spiritual thirst, he's living water. He can satisfy our thirst for God. Spiritual hunger, Jesus is the food, the bread of life. This is going to satisfy our longing, our need. Jesus is saying that the person's physical satisfaction a person's, of a person's physical needs is not answered by eating and drinking. He's saying true satisfaction is doing the will of the Father. Write this down. Only temporary satisfaction is found in earthly pursuits. Only temporary satisfaction is found in earthly pursuits. All that the world has to offer only has the power to leave us wanting more. I mean, we can certainly talk about sin here and say it doesn't satisfy for long at least. Getting drunk, partying, fulfilling sexual desires, fantasies, but you have, but have you noticed that whatever sin we talk about, even if it satisfies for the moment, those all do for a moment, the next time it's not as good. It's why getting the buzz from drinking often leads to drunkenness because you need more to just get a little bit of happiness on. It's why casual flirting that someone does at the office turns into an affair. I need more. It's why porn that's used, used to excite you, just looking at that, that other naked person there, it needs to get harder the next time just to give you the same amount of buzz because there's nothing in the world that has uh, the same uh, power as what God does. There's nothing in the world that has the offer in this area of sin that pays. It never truly satisfies. You know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. It really only leads to suffering and more sin and eventually death. Because the truth is, nothing in this world has the power to satisfy us for what we were created for. I mean, if you think of it, even the good stuff, the best stuff, never really lives up to true satisfaction. 
Having the perfect spouse so you can have the perfect marriage doesn't satisfy us. Plus, even if you found the perfect spouse, right when you married them, you'd mess it up. Some of you guys, I know that's true. The perfect car, the perfect job, the perfect, perfect vacation, the perfect house, the perfect family, the perfect children, the, the, that friendship, all the money, that stuff, uh, all that money, all that stuff, it can deliver no perfect satisfaction. I'm even talking the good stuff. And yet we want it. We want something to satisfy, don't we? It's how, it's how life coaches make their living. Have you ever thought about that? There's an entire industry of motivational speakers like Tony Robbins, guys like that. It's not that they're bad in and of themselves. They want to help you find success in business, in relationships, in physical fitness. And listen, that stuff's not bad in and of itself. Those are all good areas of life to try to do well in, but they won't bring you satisfaction. Even the preacher down in Houston, Joel Osteen, right? Who writes books like Your Best Life Now or How to Become a Better You and Empty Out the Negative sells millions and millions of copies on the promise that somehow, some way, you can find satisfaction in this life. Listen, there's no satisfaction here. And, and he's He's just kind of a success coach, a success coach like the others who masquerades as a pastor and a church. It's just a big Amway conference is all it is. And these guys, if you're in Amway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And these guys are mega, mega rich. It's a bit like the Matrix. You ever think of that? Remember the movie The Matrix? For the two of you who have never watched The Matrix, it's a movie about people that have a false reality that people live in, in a place, in an evil society of artificial intelligence. There's physical, they have physical bodies are being used by this evil artificial intelligence to produce this renewable electricity. In their story, their bodies are literally plugged into a system called the matrix, but the artificial intelligence, these machines have tricked the people into believing in their minds that they're living in a real world that they don't know that they're plugged in. Although their bodies are laying in a bed of goop in the real world producing electricity for these machines, their mind is being fooled into thinking that they're living a true real life. And it's not the real world, is it? So many times we forget as Christians, this is not our home. We can't really find true satisfaction even though it always is promised over the next hill, just over the horizon. If you just keep working, then maybe you'll find real happiness. If you get, you get that promotion, you'll get it. The bigger house, you'll get it. You get, get down that last 10 pounds, you'll find satisfaction. But this is the whole premise of heaven, isn't it? That we are not made for this fallen world. We are made for another world. It's C.S. Lewis that says this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You know this is true, don't you? Or how about this quote from St. Augustine? You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Here's another point of what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Listen, 
True satisfaction is not found in earthly pursuits. It is only found in knowing the will of the Father and doing it. True satisfaction is not found in earthly pursuits. It's only found in knowing the will of the Father and doing it. Look at this next verse, verse 34, the first half of it at least. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Oh, may that be my prayer too. May, may it be your prayer as well. Do you see what Jesus is claiming here? Jesus was sent by God, the Father, on a mission to redeem his people from their sin and to bring them back into the family of God. At this point, as he was talking to his disciples in John 4, by this well, in the middle of a field, Jesus knew what he was there to accomplish. But had he accomplished it yet? No. Not yet. He would have. He would, he would get there, but he'd have to persevere to the end. Jesus would still have to fulfill all the prophecies about him in the Old Testament and then suffer and die and be raised to life. It wasn't until his last words on the cross when he said, it is finished. What was finished? The plan of God the Father that came to purchase the freedom of all those who would believe in him. Jesus is saying that doing the will of my Father and completing it is where true satisfaction comes from, an eternal satisfaction, purpose. And, and listen, this is us as well, to live out the will of God for our life. And think about that. To find true satisfaction, not only on the other side in heaven, but to find purpose in this life as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I love this church. I do. I love these people. You have brought us together these 12 years. And yet, God, I still think satisfaction be, can be found over the next hill. God, I just repent of that. God, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters, all of us together, that we would seek to do the will of you, God. That we would put everything else in our life, our job, our families, all of that, second to the purpose that you have for us. That we would take up our cross daily and follow you. God, I pray that you would use this this verse, these sets of verses here to just prick our heart to find where we really need to be. To be about you. God, I pray for the people in this church right now that you would show them what they need to be about. As you just continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I I pray this for you. If there's someone right now that doesn't believe Jesus is Christ, 
doesn't believe that he is the son of God. God, would you turn their hearts? Would you wake them from the dead? That's my prayer right now. Would you believe? If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe, look up here for just a moment at me. Would you trade with Jesus? What I mean is he'll take all of your sins and he will give you the goodness, the results of his life, his holy life. 33 years he lived on the earth, never sinned. He'll give you that righteousness. Will you believe? I'm asking. Will you put your faith in Jesus? If you will, your sins are gone. says, if you believe in your heart, you'll be saved. And you confess with your mouth. You're given the righteousness of Jesus. So just confess to him right now. Pray to God. Say, I believe. Jesus is the Son of God. Now listen to me. Like me and every other Christian in here, you have desires that are jacked up. But slowly, you have just repented of your sin of not believing. Now you believe. Repenting just means you were following this way. Now you've turned around. Slowly but surely, even though you still have desires for old sin, God is going to change your heart. He's going to give you a new heart. In other words, a new way to feel and a new way to think. Because I get it. My thinking, I've been a Christ follower for more than 40 years. Still got jacked up thinking. But the Holy Spirit's given me a new mind. And he'll give you one too. He'll help you follow. So end your prayer like this. I want to follow you all my days. Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.